Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, this is it. You're listening to Hindsight, a new podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrect some of the world's most memorable figures. You've heard of them, but now it's time to hear from them. The year is 1959. On a stage in Cairo, Egypt, the velvet curtain is pulled tightly shut. A statuesque figure walks up to the curtain, microphone in hand. Her heels click on the stage and her dark hair perfectly arranged tumbles down her shoulders. Her big brown eyes, outlined with thick cat eyeliner, have become her trademark. Dalida, known as the exotic French pop princess, is just two years into her singing career, but the crowd on the other side of the curtain already revere her as though she were royalty. She was born to Italian parents, sings in multiple languages and tours around the world. But coming back to Cairo means coming back home. Offstage, a cue goes off and the curtain is pulled back. Dalida lifts her head and smiles. Mabsotin! She's known for asking this question from the crowds in the Middle East. Are you happy? In this episode of Hindsight, we hear from the famed artist Dalida, a global pop star whose life was filled with record-breaking achievements, devastating losses, and the constant search for love. This is the story of Dalida's life based on documented events and her own words. Before I was Dalida, I was Yolanda, Yolanda Cristina Gigliotti. I was born on January 17, 1933, in Cairo, Egypt. My family had moved from a town called Serastretta in southern Italy to a district in Cairo called Shubra, where they had me and my two brothers. We had a happy life. Well, for a while anyway. My mother was a seamstress and my father was the primo violino for Cairo's Kediva Opera House. My childhood would have been perfect if it weren't for two things. My eye infection and what happened to my father. I had to have multiple surgeries and once it was so bad, I had to wear bandages over my eyes for 40 days. I sat in the darkness, crying and crying. It was torture. I would try to pull the bandages off, but I only damaged my eyes more and caused me to squint the rest of my life because of that. The only thing that soothed me was when my father played me lullabies on his violin. I grew up on that sound, on the sound of music, on the sound of the opera, on the sweet voice of my father soothing me to sleep. It was my father sharing music with me that saved my childhood. My father was everything to me. 
But that was before everything changed. In 1939, the Second World War broke out and Egypt became allies with the British against Hitler's regime, while Italy joined the Axis powers in 1940. This complicated things for Italians living in Egypt. The Suez Canal had become a focal point for both the British and the Commonwealth, as well as Italy's fascist dictator Benito Mussolini, who also wanted a stake in that lucrative passageway. After declaring war on Britain and France in 1940, Italy invaded Egypt. Yolanda's father was Italian by birth, and as such he was considered an enemy of the state by Egypt, which was occupied by the British. He was taken to the Fayed prison camps where he stayed for four years. Yolanda was only seven years old at the time. He came back a different man, traumatized and violent. He changed so much. He beat my brothers. He beat my mother. I used to wish he would die. A year later, he suffered a brain abscess. I always felt guilty after that. I had wanted him gone so badly. And then, he was. When I was a teenager, I was obsessed with Hollywood movies. I caught every film I could at the theater, where my uncle worked as a projectionist. I watched Ava Gardner and Rita Hayworth dance across the screen, and I knew I wanted to be just like them. But I never felt as beautiful as them. I hated having to wear my stupid ugly glasses. The children at school made fun of me. When I was 16 years old, I'd had enough, so I threw them out the window. I would rather see a blurry world than wear glasses. And in that moment, I broke free from the ugly child I felt I was. Soon after, I heard about Miss Ondine, a local beauty contest. I wanted to prove to myself that I wasn't ugly. Without telling my mother, who would never approve, I secretly entered the contest. The trouble was, I came in first place, and my picture was published in all the local papers. <laughs> my poor mama, when she found out, she was so upset. She didn't want me to compete. She even cut my hair to prevent me from trying it again. But eventually, she gave in and gave me her blessing. There was no one holding me back when I heard about the Miss Egypt competition. I walked on stage wearing nothing but a leopard print bikini and the number seven to identify me. It was nothing short of scandalous. This was Egypt 1954. Wearing a bikini was unheard of. Dalida spent her childhood feeling ugly, but now she felt beautiful and she wanted to show the world. And she seemed to have a natural flair for the dramatic. She stepped out of her shell and into the limelight. I won! I was Miss Egypt and I was on my way. One of the judges happened to be French film director Marco de Gastigne. He cast me in my very first role in his film Le Master Toutankhamon. Cinema was growing then in Egypt. 
but the roles I was getting were small. I would smoke a cigarette, hold a glass of whiskey in my hand and sing a song. I wanted so badly to be a real actress, but it wasn't happening in Egypt. So, sweet Marco convinced me to try my luck in Paris. On Christmas Day of 1954, I moved to Montmartre, steeped in history with its white dome basilica of the Sacré Cœur and the nightclubs all in the same quarter. I felt inspired by the artists that came before me. I wanted so badly to fit in and I was itching to make my mark. I started auditioning. Dalila, reading for the role of Anne. Dalila, reading for the role of dancer. Dalila, reading for the role of nun. But no matter what I did, no one considered me a serious actress. I was rejected again and again. Thank you. I knew I had to keep trying to find the spotlight. Thank you. I had always dreamed of becoming someone. Merci. I wanted to succeed in life. I wasn't sure how, but I felt something pushing towards the stage. So I decided to try my luck with singing. La, 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 I started la, to take la, classes la, with Roland Berger. La, 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 he was strict la, and he yelled. La, la, la. No, not terrible. <sighs> I've had enough. So I yelled too. But I always came back the next day. People always ask me, How do you get the name Dalida? The answer is where I lived. Montmartre was a place for creative minds of every kind. We had a bohemian lifestyle. I was going by Dalila by then. I liked the name. It was common in Egypt. But one night, the playwright Alfred Marchand suggested I change my name. The movie Samson and Delilah was in theaters And he said my name should be different. He said, change the last L to a D, like Dieu, like God, the Father. I liked that. And so, Dalida was born. After another year of singing lessons, auditions and performing, on the night of April 9th, 1956, I had the chance to compete in tomorrow's number ones. I was so nervous I was shaking on the stage of the Olympia. But somehow, I still managed to belt out Etranger au Paradis. I didn't know it then, but that performance would change my life. That very evening, Eddie Barclay and Lucia Maurice came up to me. Eddie was one of the best record producers in Paris and Lucien was the artistic director of Europe Numero 1, the premier radio station at the time. They had been looking for new talent, someone to change the face of French music, and they chose me. Eddie signed me to his label. Lucien became my manager, and along with Bruno Coquetrix, the owner of the Olympia, they became my team, my family. All three men saw something different in Dalida. Eddie fell in love with the songstress she could be. Cocotrix fell in love with the sex symbol. And Lucienne fell in love with the woman. 
They all played a pivotal part in jumpstarting Dalida's career, but only one would capture Dalida's heart. We worked hard, and in 1957, my third single, Bambino, became a hit. Je sais bien que tu it was playing everywhere. Record sales went through the roof and I was awarded a gold disc. The very first for a female artist. The song stayed in the French top 10 for nearly a year. But it wasn't just the song. Delida was becoming a star. Men were attracted to her sensuality and women began to emulate her style, her dress, her makeup. She was no longer that little girl with glasses being made to feel ugly. Even her fashion faux pas was legendary. On stage one night, my shoulder strap fell down just a little bit. You could hear the crowd gasp over the music. It was a different time then, you see, and the performance was televised and, well, it became quite the moment. <laughs> Quite a moment is selling it short. It was a scandal. A shoulder strap slip on live television at that time was like a Janet Jackson wardrobe malfunction. Then music started to change. Rock and roll had taken over in the US and the trend was starting to enter Europe. The Yayam movement, as it was called, was a primarily female-fronted pop-rock genre that became France's take on rock and roll. I even sang the French version of Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. <laughs> Lucien and I became very close over the years. He was my manager, my mentor, my friend. He was my everything, including my lover. But he was married. It felt like forever for him and his wife to finally divorce. And when he did, he wasn't in any rush to be married again. But I persisted, and we got married in 1961. I brought my family to Paris for the wedding, but we had no time to savor the moment. Lucien and I left on tour immediately after. We didn't even take time off for our honeymoon. And that was the way our marriage always went. I just... I just wanted to be in love for a little while. I wanted to enjoy being married. I thought of having children, but we were always too busy working to settle into married life. I was a star, and Lucien was a businessman. So he worked, and I worked, and we worked, and that was how we were. The focus on career over their romance took its toll quickly. Some months into their marriage, despite her desire for love and a family of her own, Delida strayed. During an event at Cannes, she met a young actor named Jean Sobieski. My marriage to Lucien wasn't a happy one. I felt overworked and lonely. And Jean made me feel alive. He made me feel loved. Lucien and I divorced soon after. It was hard to see Lucien after that. But somehow we managed to keep working together. He was, after all, still one of my closest friends. In 1964, I was awarded a platinum disc for sales of over 10 million discs sold in the past seven years of my career. 
It was the very first time anyone had even used the term platinum disc. I was touring all over the world, singing with the greats, singing in different languages. Dalida was at the top of her game by the mid-60s. She'd gone beyond the superstar status she'd always hoped for. But even as she achieved her wildest dreams, she still wasn't happy. Her career wasn't enough. One failure continued to haunt her. True love and a family of her own. I was in my early 30s when I was introduced to Luigi Tenko. Luigi was an avant-garde songwriter. He was younger than me, moody and incredibly handsome. He was like the Italian Bob Dylan. <laughs> he was intense. He was passionate about everything he did. To Luigi, his music meant something. He cared so deeply about his work and believed in the value of art, not just the fame that came with it. He inspired me. I fell in love. We fell in love. But we had to keep it a secret. Our producers thought I should introduce him to a larger audience at the San Remo Music Festival, a huge competition in the world of pop music in Italy. We were going to perform Luigi's new song, Ciao Amore Ciao. But Luigi wasn't used to performing in front of huge crowds. His shows were much more intimate. Our performance in San Remo didn't go well. He was furious, humiliated. When we got eliminated in the first round, he stormed off, saying he needed to be alone. I went to find him, but... I was too late. Dalida was the one to discover Luigi's body that night. He was 29 years old when he allegedly took his own life. She was devastated. But the public didn't know about their relationship, so she had to hide her feelings. Poor Luigi. It made no sense. A week after Luigi died, I performed on live television and dedicated my performance to him. Dalida was wearing the same dress she wore the night she found Luigi dead. Then, on the night of February 26th, about a month after Luigi's death, Dalida carefully put her affairs in order and checked into a room at the Prince of Wales Hotel in Paris. She made an attempt on her life. but a hotel maid found her before it was too late. As the truth about my relationship with Luigi and the details of that night in the hotel room came out, I wanted to retreat, recover, step away from the pressures of my career. I missed Luigi. But in the months that followed, Something new began to awaken inside me. Luigi was no longer at my side, but I carried him with me. I decided to focus on more profound music. By October, I went back to the Olympia in Paris. In a long white dress, I sang J'ai décidé de vivre, 
I've decided to leave. The press started to call me Saint Dalida. And then I fell in love again. His name was Lucio. He reminded me of Luigi. He even studied Luigi's work. But he was more than 10 years younger than me. Despite the age gap, I was happy and loved. But no sooner had it started, it had to end. I was pregnant. I should have been happy. I wanted a family, a child of my own more than anything. But Lucio was too young to be a father and my career was at its peak. It wasn't the right time, not for me and not for him. So I ended it. But abortions were illegal at the time, so the operation had to be done in secret, and because of that, it was risky. The doctor botched the job so badly, she would never have children of her own. I was devastated. I blamed myself and buried it deep down. It was too painful to speak of. I threw myself deeper into my career, going on more tours and performing internationally. But as she tried to put away the pain of giving up her chance at a family and finding some sense of closure with Luigi's death, Dalida found herself getting lost in the lyrics of her music in her search for more meaning in life. I'm sure the image of a pop star with her nose in a book was laughable to some people. I was Dalida, after all. I was supposed to be glamorous, sexy, and superficial. But I learned everything I could about philosophy and psychology. I studied Freud. I even saw a Jungian psychiatrist in Paris. Then I met the Western mystic Arnaud Desjardins, and I became fascinated with exploring my spirituality. I traveled to India to study with a guru. It was so peaceful. I meditated every day. The din of the spotlight was far away. I considered giving up my career to dedicate myself to my studies, to meditation and spirituality. But my guru convinced me otherwise, saying I had a gift to share with the world. But I decided to make a change in my career. My brother Orlando took over as my producer. He had created a label for me, and our cousin Rosie had joined us as my secretary. I had brought my mother to France to live near me. While I couldn't have my own family, I could at least bring my family into my business. I felt more comfortable with Orlando at my side. In October of 1971, I decided to plan my comeback with a new, more emotional and meaningful approach to music not just pop songs. From Toute la Femme du Monde, All the Women of the World, a song about the universality of heartbreak that all women feel, to Mammy Blue, a heart-wrenching bluesy tune, to Ils ont changé ma chanson, ma. Look what they've done to my song, ma, a song about the music industry itself. Dalida effectively made the move from pop to more poetic, serious music. I wanted to debut at the Olympia, but my old friend Bruno Cocatrix, who had so supported me when Lucien and Eddie were managing my career, didn't believe the new approach could work. Now, with my brother Orlando by my side in their stead, 
things were different. At the beginning of my career, I had always had the support of men like Ocatrix, Eddie Barclay, and my dear Lucien. But I was young then, and willing to be guided to break into the industry. Now, at 38, I wanted to try something new. Bruno. And if Bruno didn't think I could do it... You know what? Fine. I'd show him exactly what I could do. I will do something. I will figure it out. I rented the venue from him myself, using my own money. The Champs-Élysées was lined with posters 27 by 4 meters announcing Dalida's return to Paris. It was a gamble, but it worked. She sold out three weeks of performances at the Olympia. They called me the queen of the theater. And Cocatrix, well, he said I could come back whenever I'd like, free of charge. <laughs> it was so much fun collaborating with my brother. Orlando had the idea of taking the cover of a song we knew as children, Jette André, and putting it over a modern disco beat. It was a hit, and French disco was born. We did this again and again, and made classics like Laissez-moi danser, which went platinum by the end of the summer. Oh, the fun of disco! We did 18 huge shows at the Palais des Sports in Paris with 30 musicians, 12 dancers, and 12 costume changes in the span of two hours, all in front of 4,000 people. Hit after hit after hit, Dalida's comeback was a huge success. But underneath it all, Dalida still desired a love of her own. And then tragedy came knocking at Dalida's door once again. Lucienne Maurice, her first husband, the man who had discovered her, who had managed her and guided her through the beginning of her career, with whom she had stayed good friends for years, had taken his own life. Another love, another death. We make mistakes when we are young. I regretted having left him. I felt so guilty. Maybe if we had stayed together, maybe. In October of 1972, my friend and songwriter Pascal Sevran had introduced me to a new mysterious man, Richard Chanfray. He was wild. He told me he was an alchemist and the reincarnation of the Count of Saint-Germain, born in the 1700s. My friends found him eccentric at best. But for a while we were happy. I was happy to be with someone who loved me. Or was it because he was available to love you? In 1973, I called my old friend Alain Delon to record a new track with me. We had met when I first moved to Paris before either one of us was known for anything. But now Alain was a famous actor and something of a sex symbol. Parole, parole was originally written and sung in Italian, but I wanted to bring it to my audience, so I asked Alain to sing it with me in French. It only took a few hours to record, but the lyrics, 
about lovers who say things they don't mean resonated, and not just with me. The song was a wild success, both in Europe and Japan, where they loved Alain. Now people say parole, parole, even when the politicians whisper them sweet nothings on the news. With all that under my belt, I decided it was time to try my hand in the United States. I called up the famous choreographer, Lester Wilson, who choreographed Saturday Night Fever. And I danced and sang on stage at a sold-out show at Carnegie Hall in New York. Incidentally, Dalida's music and her larger-than-life persona, her flair for glamour, made her something of a gay icon. Championing human rights was close to her heart as many of her friends in Paris were part of the gay community. Over the years, Dalida had supported AIDS research and even acknowledged gay love and gay marriage in the lyrics of some of her songs. One night in Montmartre, I walked into a nightclub and saw a beautiful queen on the stage. A sparkly dress just like mine. And, oh, what a stage presence. All while singing my eight-minute-long song, Gigi Lamoroso. I burst into the dressing room to tell the star myself. Fabuloso, bellissimo. Ah, what a triumph. (laughs) I think you would be almost better than me, no? But things with my boyfriend, Richard, were becoming strained. I loved him so much. I knew not everyone in my circle found him as charming as I did. But I wanted them to see what I saw in him. We even tried to record an album together, but it wasn't very successful. And then, one night... We got home late. We realized quite suddenly... There was a stranger in the house. I was terrified. But Richard took off suddenly to confront whoever it was. I called after him, but he wouldn't listen. He was so stubborn and hot-headed. He turned out to be the maid's lover, but... In the scuffle, somehow, Richard shot him. Luckily, the man survived, but I had to bail Richard out of jail. And after that... Things only got worse. We broke up. I celebrated my 50th birthday alone. It should have been a rite of passage in my life. But I just felt lonely. My friends and family knew there was something broken inside my heart. That same year, I got another call. Richard had taken his own life. How many men would I lose this way? And then, in 1985, my eyes started to hurt again, forcing me to step back from performing on stage. Eventually, I recorded a new album. I started to tour. But my depression was getting worse. In September of 1986, Dalida went back to Cairo. On the screen at the theater where she grew up, she watched herself perform in Yusuf Shaheen's film, The Sixth Day. She had achieved her dream. 
but what she had achieved was no match for what she was feeling in her heart. Dalida was slipping away, her depression taking over. Whether on stage or on television, her performances had become mechanical and stiff. Her lyrics, while still popular, often reflected a heartbreaking melancholy. Moi, qui ai tout choisi dans ma vie, je veux choisir ma mort aussi. I, who choose everything in my life, I want to choose my death as well. Back in Paris, as she did twenty years before, when she first tried to take her own life, Dalida revised her will and knitted scarves for her friends and family. On May 3rd, 1987, I sat down and wrote a note. La vie m'est insupportable. Pardonnez-moi. Life is unbearable for me. Forgive me. More than 30 years after her death, Dalida's legend and music live on. In Paris, she is commemorated with a life-size funerary sculpture where she is buried in Montmartre. In 2003, Dalida was ranked third in an award for the greatest singer of the century in France, coming in only after Madonna and Celine Dion. A bust of her likeness sits in Place Dalida, a square named after her. Her 31-year-long career spanned hit after hit in multiple languages and over multiple world tours. While her life is known for its tragedies, she is remembered and beloved all over the world. Mabzotin! Hindsight is a historical drama podcast. The preceding episode was based on historical events, archival interviews, and new conversations with people close to the subject. Hindsight is an Al Jazeera original podcast produced by Kelly and Kelly. Their team, series director Chris Kelly, series producer Lauren Berkovich and Michael Tanko-Grand, executive producers Chris Kelly and Pat Kelly. This episode is written by Nessa Aref. Dalida is played by Ulka Simone Mohanty. This episode is narrated by me, Carmel Amit. Editing and sound design by Paul Tedeschini. Associate producer, Nessa Aref. Translation by Abdallah Al-Musalam. Joe DeFrias is Al Jazeera's executive producer for this series. Fact-checking by Hyojin Park. Script editing by Danello Havaleshka. Al Jazeera's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. 